Just as only God can save us, only God can sanctify us. However, when it comes to sanctification, God only produces that change in our hearts as you and I expend maximum effort at obedience. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is sanctification, and why does it matter so much in the Christian's life? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue the series, The Christian's DNA. In 1 John 3, the Apostle John teaches that the doctrines of adoption and glorification should motivate a believer to become more and more like Christ. This is known as the doctrine of sanctification. This doctrine teaches that we as Christians are in a process whereby we become progressively more like Christ, putting to death the patterns and works of the flesh, while growing instead in Christ-likeness until that day or until Christ returns. Believer, rest assured that your progressive sanctification is a key sign that you have been adopted into the family of God. Is that your reality? Let's join Tom now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. John the Apostle didn't want a single genuine Christian to ever wonder if he or she was a fraud. John wanted us to know that we are in fact the real thing. And so he gives us 1 John through the inspiration of the Spirit. And in this wonderful letter, he gives us three tests of eternal life, not so much to prove that we're frauds, but rather for true Christians to learn that they're not, to learn that we're the real thing. One of the tests that we've discovered together is that we are to obey Jesus Christ in His Word. If we're genuine Christians, we will obey Him. And we're learning in the second time we're looking at this test, in the second cycle of the test as John repeats them, we're learning that our obedience to Jesus Christ and to His Word shows our real birth. Have we experienced the new birth or are we still dead in sin? Have we been born of God or are we in fact still dead to Him? This is the message of 1 John 2, verse 28, down through chapter 3, verse 3. The point of this paragraph is that a true Christian has been born of God and will therefore be like his father. If we've been born of God, we have his DNA. And if we have his DNA, our character and conduct will reflect that of our father. In the passage, John gives us several crucial insights into what it means to be born of God. We've already worked our way through most of this. Let me just remind you of what we've seen. We've learned that the reality of the new birth, if we've been born of God, that will be certified at Jesus' revelation. When He comes, we will, we will receive Him with confidence if we're really His, or we'll shrink away in shame if we're pretenders, if we're frauds. The new birth will be confirmed now by our actions. That's the last verse of chapter 2. Thirdly, it will be followed by our adoption, chapter 3, verse 1. And then last week, we learned that the new birth will be completed with our glorification. John's final insight 
that we come to this morning is that the new birth will be evidenced in our sanctification. It's really a similar point to the one he made at the end of chapter 2, but it's slightly different in its nuance. Our new birth, if you've really been born of God, it will be evidenced in sanctification. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, you'll notice that verse 3 begins with the little coordinating conjunction, and it actually makes a couple of very important points, that little word and. First of all, it makes a general doctrinal point, and that is in the New Testament, belief always determines behavior. Or to put it differently, doctrine always precedes and directs our doing. What you know drives how you live. In this case, understanding your glorification in verse 2 produces sanctification in verse 3. That's why that little and. The word and makes a very specific contextual point. As we saw last week, verse 2 teaches that everyone who is born of God will ultimately experience glorification. We will see and be like Jesus Christ. The word and, linking verse 3 to verse 2, tells us that there is an inevitable connection between the hope of future glorification and the pursuit of present sanctification. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, I am to live a holy life because I am a Christian. I start from the standpoint that I have been made a child of God by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. I am destined for heaven, and it is because I know this that I am preparing now. Now, why is this a reality? Why is sanctification such an important part of the new birth? And that is, it follows the new birth. Why is that? Well, think about it this way. In regeneration, in the new birth, when you were born again, you received a new nature. You are not the person you used to be. Christianity isn't about turning over a new leaf or saying a prayer. It's about being radically changed from the person you were when you were born and lived through life and being changed into a different person with a new nature. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. However, even though we have a new nature, there is still a part of us that remains unredeemed until death or until Christ returns. The beachhead of that unredeemed part of us is the body. But it's more than that, and Paul labels it in the book of Romans as the flesh. It's the flesh. And sanctification is the process by which we put to death the deeds of the flesh and we grow in likeness to Jesus Christ progressively through this life. Here's a definition of sanctification as Lewis Burkhoff gives it in his systematic theology. It is the work of God's free grace by which His Spirit continuously delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. We could put it like this. God works in the person who's been declared right with Him, who's been saved, so that there will be a decreasing pattern of sin 
and an increasing pattern of righteousness. John's point in verse 3 is that sanctification necessarily, certainly, inexorably, without exception, follows regeneration. Now, as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, I want us to consider several important details in verse 3 about our sanctification. The first detail we learn here is the extent of sanctification. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Literally, the Greek text says, everyone having this hope. There, There are no exceptions. This is true of every genuine believer. Or as our Lord put it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they and only they will see God. Hebrews 12, 24 says, pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You see, the false teachers and the false Christians in John's day claimed to know Jesus, but their lives were not marked by purity like Jesus, but by sin like the devil. And so John writes, listen, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. If you're a Christian, you've been born of God. That's verse 29 of chapter 2. And one day you'll be like Jesus Christ. That's chapter 3, verse 2. And if one day you'll be like Jesus Christ, you are gradually becoming more like him even now. That's verse 3. There are no exceptions. One writer, Culpepper, puts it this way, those who hope for heaven but do not pursue righteousness have pipe dreams, not hope. So, the extent of sanctification is every true Christian. There are no exceptions to that. There are no flatliner Christians. Where there is life, there will be growth. It might be slow, it might be intermittent, it might be hard to track at times, but growth there will be because growth comes with life. There's a second detail here about our sanctification, and that is the motivation for sanctification. Look again at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him... There's the motivation. This is the only time, by the way, in his writings that John uses the word hope. And he adds the demonstrative pronoun this, this hope, which points back to verse 2. Look at it again. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's our hope. Now, as I have mentioned to you on many occasions, When you come to the word hope in the New Testament, you have to start by forgetting what you know about the English word. It's not the same word. It's not the same concept. You see, frequently we use the English word hope for something that we desire but we aren't confident of. For example, I'm a, as you know, a football fan. I grew up playing football and grew up cheering the Dallas Cowboys, still do. It's been a bit of a drought over the last bit, but I still cheer, and I hope that the Cowboys have a winning season. That's a desire, but I'm not necessarily confident that it's going to happen. (laughs) Sometimes we even use the word hope for what's nearly impossible. I hope the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl this year. 
but I'll be shocked if that happens in light of what's going on. So our English word then consists of desire mixed with uncertainty. Desire and uncertainty. That is not at all like the word here. The Greek word is desire plus certainty plus eager anticipation. Desire, certainty, and eager anticipation for when it comes. In fact, the leading Greek lexicon defines the word hope like this, looking forward to something with reason for confidence in its fulfillment. This hope of glorification that's spelled out in verse 2, look at it again, includes three great expectations that we're certain of and we're eager for. One, Christ will appear. Number two, we will see Him. And number three, we will be like Him. That is hope, and that hope, if it's real, will motivate us. You say, how, how does hope motivate us? Well, think about how this happens generally in life. Think about when a woman is pregnant. How does the couple's hope, in this biblical sense, they are, they are certain that it's coming, and they are eagerly anticipating it, how does their hope change the way they live. It is their hope in the biblical sense of the word that compels that couple to make huge changes in their lives. Think about the money and time they will invest in in making a nursery for that child. Or maybe they'll even make one of the greatest of changes and they'll buy a gas minivan. (laughs) I remember years ago I was walking in California and I uh, came across this, uh, this n- brand new Honda minivan, and there's a bumper sticker on it, and the bumper sticker said this, from hippie to yuppie, that's young urban professional, from hippie to yuppie in nine short months. <laughs> you see, their hope changes how they live. In the same way, our hope, the confident, certain expectation of future glory, compels us to battle our flesh. Why? Because we know what's coming. Our hope causes us to to persevere, to keep battling foot by bloody foot because of the hope of what we know is coming. This is how life works in so many areas. I mean, think about it. Many people only get through the work week in hope of what? The weekend. The weekend's coming. Others only get through a year's work in the hope of vacation. Every day, people endure serious and painful surgeries in the hope of a better, healthier, more pain-free life. But notice here, our hope is not fixed on us, but notice what he says, on Him. Our hope is in a person, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.1 Christ Jesus is our hope. Our hope is grounded on His promise, that's verse 2, and on His person. I love the way Hebrews 10, 23 puts it, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. Now, look back at verse 2 in 1 John 3, beloved. 
now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, that it, is, is it hasn't been manifested, it hasn't been made visible, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. There is our hope of sharing Christ's glory. Because we will see Him just as He is, there's our hope of seeing Christ's glory. John says this hope of seeing and sharing the glory of Christ compels us to pursue sanctification. This is everywhere in the New Testament. Let me just show you one text. Turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul's just talked about his justification, that he's been declared right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the paragraph before. And then he says in verse 12 of Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained. Now, you'll notice the word it is added by the translators. I don't think it helps here. You could literally translate the first phrase of verse 12, not that I've already arrived. Arrived at what? Or have already become perfect. I'm not yet perfectly like Jesus Christ. But what do I do? I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He said, listen, the reason Christ saved me was to make me like him. And I press on to that same goal. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I'm not there yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. The picture is, is of a runner in a race. I press on toward the goal because I want the prize. And what's the prize? It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's being like Jesus Christ. And he says, I I run with all my strength, with all my energy, pursuing the goal and the prize that comes with it. That is the reality of our motivation. It's what compels us toward sanctification. There's a third detail back in our text, and that is our role in sanctification. Again, notice verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, purifies himself. Now, that is a very interesting expression, and it teaches us a couple of important truths. Let me just give them to you, a couple of truths about our role in sanctification. First of all, sanctification is not a ritual that I perform, but it is a real cleansing of heart and life. Back in the Septuagint, that is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the translation that was done a couple hundred years before Christ that was used in the New Testament era, in the Septuagint, this word purifies is used exclusively for ritual or ceremonial cleansing. But in the New Testament, at times it's used that way. For example, in the book of Acts, it's used that way when Paul is preparing to take the Nazarite vow in Acts 21, Acts 26, I'm sorry, Acts 24. But it's also used for moral purification, to become spiritually clean internally. It's clearly that sense that John has in mind here. He's not talking about ritual or ceremonial cleansing. He's talking about real inward cleansing. How do I know that? Well, we're going to see it in the very next paragraph. In the very next paragraph, he keeps talking about sin versus righteousness, sin versus righteousness. He's talking about real cleansing of the heart and life. The second point we learn here about our role is that as we live this out, sanctification is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing process. 
The Greek verb is in the present tense. Literally, everyone having this hope is purifying himself. In other words, this is not something we do once. This is something we do repeatedly, daily, in an ongoing way, and we do it throughout this life. We never arrive at perfection in this life. Now, in systematic theology terms, this continual cleansing of ourselves is referred to as progressive sanctification. There's a third lesson we learn here about our role, and that is sanctification is not received passively, but is worked out actively. This cuts across what a lot of people think about sanctification. It's not received passively. It's not something God just zaps me with. It's something that I have to work out actively. Notice again, verse 3, the Christian purifies himself. Now, please be careful here. Don't get confused. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from the stain and the guilt of sin and make us acceptable to God. That work is something Christ must do and He alone. This is clear in John's letter. Look at chapter 1, 1 John 1, verse 7. It says, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Go down to chapter 2, verse 2. He Himself, the righteous one, Jesus, is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's justice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Anywhere in the world someone gets saved, it's through the work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live, not, notice this, not through us and our actions, but through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, here it is again, to be the satisfaction of God's wrath, the propitiation for our sins. So understand this, you will only be made right with God, you will only be saved through the work and the work alone of Jesus Christ. You can only be cleansed from the guilt and the stain of sin through His work. But having been cleansed from the guilt and stain of sin, now being a Christian, we have a role in cleansing ourselves from the controlling power of sin in our lives once we have been redeemed by the work of Christ. Again, don't misunderstand, only God can truly change our hearts. Just as only God can save us, only God can sanctify us. However, when it comes to sanctification, God only produces that change in our hearts as you and I expend maximum effort at obedience in the use of the means that God has provided. By the way, this is the way God normally works. Think about this fact. Only God can heal you. And can God do that directly without the use of means? Sure He can. I think He does that often in the lives of people. But how does God work normally? He uses means. He uses doctors and medicine and the, the healing power that He's put within the human body. Think about crops. Only God can make a crop grow. But again, He uses means to accomplish that normally. The farmer sows the seed, the farmer 
plows the ground first, sows the seed, then he weeds, and then he allows time and sun and rain to have its effect. In the same way, sanctification is also God's work, but he uses means. And what means does he use? He uses you. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his series, The Christian's DNA. Tom will bring you the 10th and concluding installment on our next program. Join us then. Are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church, where Tom serves as pastor, is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas Distance location. Join Pastor Tom as he hosts the Master Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, coming up March 23rd through the 26th, 2023, at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to the Word unleash.org. That's the word unleash.org. And remember to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. We also invite you to visit the word unleash.org where you'll find other resources, including additional series from the word unleashed. That's the word unleash.org. You know, the Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.